in this way, uh, in spite of some of the um, bizarre realities that we are in uh, during this season. I want to mention uh, one thing. Uh, next week, Pastor Sig will be speaking as part of his three-week rotation. And, and so uh, part, of, part of the tradition that we have at Thornhill is uh, the first Sunday of every month is we will be doing, we do communion. And obviously, communion this, during this season looks a little bit different, but we want to encourage you, we want to invite you to, to have bread and juice on hand as you listen to Sig's message next week. Uh, he'll be leading you through communion, and, uh, and so as we, as we practice communion together uh, in our homes, uh, we, we, know, we can know that we're doing it together as a church as well, just not together physically. And so just want you to be uh, prepared for that next week as well. So this morning, we're going to be continuing uh, our series, as I've mentioned, on Ephesians. We're going to be studying Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 13. I'd like to read it from the NIV uh, this morning. This is Paul's words. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, surely you have heard about the administration of God's grace that was given to me for you. That is, the mystery made known to me by revelation, as I have already written briefly, in reading this, then, you will be able to understand, understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to people in other generations as it has now been revealed by the Spirit of God's holy apostles and prophets. This mystery is that through the gospel, of, is that through the, this mystery is that through the, the gospel, the Gentiles are heirs together with Israel, members together of one body, and sharers together in the promise of Christ Jesus. I became a servant of this gospel by the gift of God's grace given me through the working of his power. Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. In him, and through faith in him, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged because of my suffering for you, which are your glory. When I was in Bible college, I had a professor named Mark Mealy. He taught me both theology and philosophy during my years there. Through his classes, I realized two things very quickly. One is that I am not a theologian and I'm not a philosopher. Uh, they, both of those subjects are things that are far beyond my mental capacity. And, uh, and that ties in with the second thing that I discovered very quickly, is that I'm not nearly as smart as I thought I was. And I realized during those classes that I lacked the ability or the interest to really fully appreciate what Professor Mealy taught me during those classes. One thing I do recall, though, was that on different occasions, he would bring classical music in for us to listen to. Again, lacking the refined and sophisticated taste that he had, I failed to see how, things, how the things that we were discussing related to the music that we were listening to. One of the songs that he played for us, though, was Mozart's 12 Variations on a French song. I'm not going to try to, try to keep, tell you the title, but we have come to know it as Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. As I listened, I began to hear these subtle variations that Mozart was making as the song progressed. 
where Mozart started the song at its most basic chords to the, to the tune of Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star. But eventually, eventually Mozart would finish one cycle of the song and then he would come back to the beginning. But the second time around, he would add subtle variations that would be added to it. And as the second cycle ended, he would, he would repeat the, the, the first and second cycles. He would combine those two, but then he would add another variation to it. And, and over the tw- these 12 variations, eventually, eventually it, by the end of the song, it, created, it, it culminated all of the, the, the um, qualities that, that, it, that, had a, that it, it were included in these cycles. And it culminated into this beautiful work of art. That it, that it seemed to expand and broaden on everything that we had just listened to up to that point. Well, that's, that's very similar to what is happening in Ephesians 3, where everything that we have just read in the previous two chapters are now being expanded and amplified upon in chapter 3, where Paul has now taken the foundational truths that he has previously communicated, and now he's beginning to expand on them elaborating on the previous two chapters. Through the book of Ephesians, Paul uses a Greek word musterion, which when translated means mystery. This mystery is an important theme that that Paul is addressing throughout the book of Ephesians. He uses this word musterion six different times, but in chapter 3, he uses it three of those times. Now, whenever we see that sort of repetition happen in Scripture, it's important that we take note of it. It's important that we say, okay, what is, what is, what is being communicated here in this passage? Now, as we are all aware right now, our world is in a state of crisis. Everything except essential services are shut down. The economy is experiencing critical challenges. Fear, anxiety, and loss are increasing daily. And at this point, there is no cure that seems to exist. Now, daydream with me for a moment. Imagine today that it's announced that scientists have discovered a cure for this virus, COVID-19. The world, of course, would be thrilled. But also imagine with me for a moment that the scientists that had this information said, no, I don't think we're going to share it with anyone well, the world would be in an uproar. We would think that's foolishness. The world would be outraged. There would be threats and violence to get that cure. Now, that does seem unrealistic. Instead, I suspect that once a cure is discovered, I would imagine governments and scientists would collaborate and work as hard as they can to share the cure. And they would do whatever it takes so that this mystery would now be made known. Well, this is where we find Paul, who we discover that he has this critical piece of information that's been revealed, far more valuable than the cure for COVID-19. And we discover that he's willing to do whatever it takes to tell others about it. In fact, the first thing we discover in this chapter is that Paul is willing to go to jail to reveal what God has told him. Paul is willing to do whatever is necessary to help everyone and anyone benefit from this mystery being discovered. The mystery that Paul is speaking about is the concept of the church, the gathering of people, specifically the Gentiles, those that recognize Jesus as the head of the body. We read in in verse 6, 
The Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Now, for us today, we would say, well, that's not a mystery. That's, that's old news. We are all aware of this. But as Paul is writing this letter and, and, and as the Ephesians would be reading this, and it's, as it circulates through Asia Minor, there was very little indication that the Gentiles were included in the covenant with God. Remembering from last week's message, there was this deep hatred that existed between the Jews and the Gentiles. This idea that Paul was communicating through, through, the, through this letter would be something entirely new being made known to the, to the people. There was very little indication in the Old Testament that salvation was extended to the Gentiles unless you were really looking for it. The mystery revealed is that the Jews and Gentiles were now members of the same body known as the church. Paul, though, tells the Ephesians that the bringing together of these two groups, Jews and Gentiles, was something that God had orchestrated and planned from the beginning of eternity. Where we see Paul expanding on God's plan that is first revealed in chapter 1. Where God had a plan of salvation, but now we discovered that not only did it, was there a plan of salvation, but there was actually a plan that included all of humanity that we call the church. For many of the Jewish Christians in Ephesus, although they had recognized Jesus as their Savior, many of them were still practicing and living their lives under the teaching and authority of the Old Covenant rules and regulations. The point that Paul was making in the previous two chapters was that much of their understanding of who God was and how they related to God wasn't necessarily wrong, but that it was limited. It would be like a a small child looking up at nighttime and seeing the moon and points up and says, that's space. Now, to a child's limited understanding, the moon is all they know of space. Now we know, so we know that the child, though, isn't necessarily wrong. But we also know that there is so much more to space than just the moon. Again, it's not wrong, but it's a limited understanding of the fullness of what space is. The Old Covenant teachings, also known as the law, have been the primary mode from which people got their understanding of who God was. And depending on who their teacher was, it impacted their understanding of who God was as well. It wasn't wrong, but potentially limited. This new covenant teaching that Paul was presenting would have radically transformed the Judaic faith. What Paul is saying in chapter 3 is that the mystery, this thing that was revealed first to him, then to the apostles, and now to the Ephesians, is that what we thought we knew about God hasn't changed, but that it's actually expanded. This mystery is that salvation is no longer a Jewish thing, but that it's a humanity thing. That Jews and Gentiles would both have accessibility to God and would now be invited into the family of God's kingdom. Paul, though, has been tasked with stewarding this message. The Greek word we see in verse 2 for the word steward, for the word stewardship, is, or in the NIV, we see it read as administrate is actually more closely interpreted as dispensing. 
When I was in high school, I played high school football, and, and all of our practices were right after class at the end of the day. And so typically after practice, it would, be, it would be supper time, and we were all hungry young guys. But we discovered really quickly that if you, if you, were the, if you shook the, school, the high school vending machine really, really hard, that the chocolate bars and the chips that were inside of it would pop out of their cages, and, and we would be able to feast on whatever the contents fell out. Eventually, we figured out that rather than shake it, if we actually whack it against the wall that was against it, it would actually cause more things to fall out. Well, the school caught on to what was happening, and, and so they bolted the entire vending machine to, to the brick wall directly behind it. And so it was anchored very securely to the, securely to the brick wall. Well, being the resourceful young men that we were, not much was going to deter us from getting our free snacks. We were hungry boys. And so we just yanked the whole machine out of the wall and slammed it against the wall some more and, and repeated the process and enjoyed this, this free food that we had inside. Now as Paul is dispensing God's grace, he is not obviously committing willful vandalism and theft like me and my teammates were. But he is dispensing the contents of what he has inside of him. Paul has this new message that has been revealed to him that he needs no prompting to share. In the first two chapters, Paul has made these scandalous, these strong declarations regarding the grace that God has extended towards the Gentiles. Where we see that, that according to Paul's message, that the Jews and Gentiles are now on level ground at the cross. Paul is teaching here that the Gentiles and Jews are no longer separate. It's no longer us and them, but it's them together. That, that they're both in need of a Savior. He's acknowledging and recognizing and declaring that we are all in it together. Paul is so convinced of this truth that in spite of his own past, that in spite of his own past, he responds to the grace that he has been given by God and is compelled to tell others about it too. The mystery that has been concealed is now being revealed through Paul. As many of you are aware, I enjoy disc golfing. For those of you that don't know what disc golfing is, disc golf is, uh, follows many of, the, many of the same rules that regular golf does, except instead of, instead of hitting a small white ball with a stick, you throw what looks like a frisbee instead. Over the last five or six years that I've been playing, I would say that I have improved and that I'm fairly average in my abilities. There are some that are much better at disc golf than I am, and there are some that aren't. Over the course of the few years that I've played, I've had the opportunity to introduce a few people to the game of disc golf. One of the things that I do, even before someone throws a disc, is to walk them through a few principles of the flight paths of different discs, some of the general rules. One of the other things that I will do, though, is show them a typical technique to throwing the disc. And the reason I do this is because anyone can throw a frisbee. But if you want to be effective at disc golf, if you want to enjoy disc golf and want to maximize the potential of what a disc can do, it helps to know what the, dis what the disc is designed to do and how to throw it properly. Now, as I, as I share this information with, 
my, my pupil at that point. Everything is all theory until we get onto the course and begin to throw the discs. At that point, as soon as we step onto the, onto the disc golf course and start throwing discs, the theory now becomes practical. And suddenly, it's no longer my words that they're, listening, they're watching, it's now my actions that they're watching. And I actually begin, have to begin to model what I've instructed someone to just do. They are now watching me. For Paul, the mystery that has been concealed is now being revealed. And he's modeling the message. It's no longer theory, but now it's practiced. Paul models the cost of what it takes to make this message, make it, to make this mystery known. What's interesting here, though, is that as we discover that he is in prison, he doesn't say he's a prisoner of Nero's. Instead, Paul says, I am a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I'm imprisoned because of Jesus, not because of Nero. Paul humbly sets the standard for us and the Ephesians for what it looks like to follow Christ. Paul, in verse 8, says, Although I am less than the least of all the Lord's people. This grace was given me to preach, to preach to the Gentiles the boundless riches of Christ. Paul here shows us that he has enough self-awareness about his past to acknowledge that he has some blemishes on his resume. That his past has, is pretty jaded. And in some people's eyes, it may actually, disqualify, it may actually disqualify him from being used by God. I imagine that there may have been times in Paul's own mind that as he reflected on his past, the way, things that he did to persecute the church, I wonder if there was times that he maybe considered that his actions disqualified him too. But I think the difference between self-deprecation and self-awareness is when we have a healthy understanding and appreciation for our own strengths and limitations. Paul was fully aware that although his past may have disqualified him in one sense, but maybe in another, it actually maybe strengthened his teachings as well. This man who had a reputation for destroying the church was now subjecting himself to prison for the sake of building up the church. And here we find that he's modeling the message for the Ephesians. Paul, though, fully aware of all the areas that he was qualified and disqualified to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, understood that it was because of God's grace that he was able to do the things that he was doing. He tells us in verse 1 that it was God who gave him the directive to preach to, preach to the Gentiles. Although Paul's ministry was unique at that time, I think it serves as a reminder to us that the tasks that God calls you and I into are unique and specifically designed for each of us. When we steward God's grace, when we, when we, when we distribute God's grace, when we dispense God's grace, a couple of things happen. One, we discover that God is in control of what happens with the results. God called Paul to preach to the Gentiles in spite of his past. God was still able to use him. His past wasn't a disqualifier. 
But instead, God was glorified through it. God controls the results. And secondly, we take responsibility for what God has called us to do. For Paul, again, he was, he was, he was called to preach, to preach to the Gentiles. And that meant he had to go to jail for it. But if God had called Paul to preach to the accountants, I imagine we would read that he was an accountant for Jesus. If God had called Paul to be a police officer, he would be a police officer for Jesus. Whatever we are called into, as our occupations, our giftings, our strengths, we use those things for the purpose that God has intended them to be used, so that we can dispense God's grace wherever we are. Ultimately, though, Paul understood that as God controlled the results, and he was faithful in dispensing the revealed mystery, that the Jews and Gentiles would accomplish something that they could never do apart from each other. Paul says that together, that together, they reveal the manifold wisdom of God. That the intent of the church is to make the manifold wisdom of God known. And that word manifold that Paul uses here is the only time that we see it used in Scripture. It basically means many-sided or has varied forms. Now the idea in this word is that, is that the wisdom of God is many-sided. Like a kaleidoscope that reveals an amazing array of shapes and colors as it's turned gently. It reveals more shapes and more colors. This, the manifold wisdom of God is like witnessing this, this marvelous tapestry that a designer has woven together. Or a field of brightly colored flowers that we can enjoy in the spring and the summer. That as a result of the church, as a result of you and I, the vast array of God's mystery would be made known. That the manifold wisdom of God reveals this, this much larger picture of who God is. That through Jesus, a new covenant was established. And that through Jesus, the mystery of God has been revealed. That Jesus came to bring salvation to all people, Jews and Gentiles. And the church, you and I have the privilege and calling to reveal the many-sidedness of God. Where in spite of our own lim personal limitations, in spite of our own sin, maybe in spite of our own past, or even our own present, God looks past it all and invites you and I to experience a relationship with Him. Paul takes it a step further in verse 10 when he says that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. To the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Some translations, we read principalities and powers in heavenly places. Most commentators, though, as they read that, as they interpret that, that section of Scripture, they, they, they believe that it means angelic beings, both good and fallen. That there are two primary ways that the manifold wisdom of God is revealed to the angelic beings. The, the many-sidedness of God is revealed to both good and fallen angels. One, is how you and I relate to Jesus. In verse 12, Paul says, Through Jesus, 
we have boldness and confident access to him through faith. How we relate to God is different than angels. There doesn't seem to be any real indication that angels actually relate to God the way that humanity does. But instead, they're servants of God. This is a significant distinction as we consider that although angels can see the glory of God in eternity, it's you and I that have the privilege of interacting with God through His Spirit. And as we interact with God, we show the relational heart of God to the angelic beings around us. Secondly, angels know that you and I are image bearers of God. That how we live, characteristics that we have, reflect the character of God to the angelic beings. These two qualities are the two major distinctions between us and God. How we relate to God and that we are his image bearers. When angelic beings, though, see our weaknesses and limitations, they can also see our strengths and potential. They also see what could be. That if we were just to take one more step of surrender, one more step of obedience, one more step of faith, that as we continue to live out the manifold wisdom of God, as we continue to reveal the mystery of God, we discover that we are being called to reveal God to all creation, including the angels and demons. We have a calling and purpose much larger than the Jews and Gentiles could have imagined apart from each other. We have a calling and purpose much larger than you and I could ever imagine. The church is central to the gospel of Christ's plan to reveal the many-sidedness of God, that we as the body of Christ, the church, the mystery Paul is talking about here, have a privilege to be part of stewarding, dispensing God's grace in a way that is unique to each of us. For Paul, again, he was in his own form of social isolation. Yet in spite of his circumstances, He understood and believed that God had called him to a purpose beyond his own. So Paul, I think, gives us an indication, three ways that we can reveal the many-sidedness of God today. Stay strong. Shift our perspective and share our strength in Jesus. Paul tells us in verse 13, he says, I ask you, therefore, not to be discouraged. He's saying, Don't lose heart. Stay strong. Even when things are discouraging, when the world seems so uncertain like it does right now, you are a part of the church. The church that was a part of God's plan from the beginning. God hasn't lost sight of you. The truth of Jesus Christ protects you. Two, shift our perspective. We can go through this time and question God and say, God, why would you put us through this? But what if we shifted our perspective to recognizing that that we exist in where we are right now, in this moment in time, for such a time as this? In verse 1, again, we know that Paul understood that he was in prison for Jesus. What if we saw this moment in our history and humanity? That this was the time for the church to shine the glory of Jesus 
in a time when things seem cloudy and dark. Three, share our strength in Jesus. As you and I talk with Jesus, as we pray, and we share our fears and uncertainties, our anxieties, our hopes and dreams and excitement that we all have, as we pray for the people around us, it's also important and necessary to share with those around us how God has strengthened you in this time, how you have found rest in the midst of this stressful time, how you have found peace in the presence of Jesus. In verse 12, Paul says, we have boldness and confident access to the God of the universe through his son, Jesus. As we look at our lives, what we do with it, it goes beyond our church, it goes beyond our families, it goes beyond this planet. It actually declares the wisdom of God to the angelic beings around us. That the church is central to the gospel of Christ's plan to reveal the many-sidedness of God. Jesus tells us that nothing will prevail over the church. That even when we have personal challenges, even when our health fails, even when pandemic spreads, when the economy fails, the church will not fail. We will not lose. We will not be overcome. When everything falls apart around us, Jesus stands strong and firm. Because he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your plan of salvation and your plan of the church. That you privilege us with the gift of of, of purpose. That you call us to to reveal your manifold wisdom. Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us an awareness? Would you give us a passion to, to, to live out this grace so that the world, so that the angels and demons can see it? Would you help us to look beyond our circumstances and see just how vast the calling is that you have placed in our lives to make you known? We thank you that you have entrusted us with that. We pray now, God, that you would help us to live, to live in obedience, to walk in that now. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.